So hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Open Swim. Here with your hosts, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz. Eric Kogelschatz. Brian Andrzejczynski. And Lauren Benson. So today we wanted to talk a little bit about something that feels oddly familiar and maybe a little bit nostalgic even, but we're going to talk about the 20s. And I'm not just talking about the 2020s, but the 1920s. And oddly, we're 100 years removed, but there are so many things that seem to be tying us together with that last decade that we could have never predicted. Whether you call it the Roaring Twenties or the Jazz Age, this was an era largely defined by laissez-faire and a complete joy de vivre and this desire to really cut loose. And what we're seeing now is that people in the 2020s are having the same situation with compression and expansion. And coming off of this pandemic, a lot of futurists are predicting that we're going to be seeing this era of wanting to go out and truly live in a big way, um, much as we haven't seen in the last few decades. So today, you know, our team has come prepared to talk about some of those trends that pertain to design, as well as trends that pertain to the way that we live life today, how we may live life in the future, and what that will look like. So I'd like to toss it over to Lauren because she's spent a lot of time thinking about this in the last few weeks. And she's identified some key trends that we're gonna dig into and then from there talk about how they may look a little different as we embark on this next year. So Lauren, why don't you kick us off and tell us where your research took you? So one of the things that I think is pretty interesting and definitely making its way to the top of popularity, it's becoming very popular these days, is 3D design. And you can see this through like VR gaming and those virtual reality experiences and stuff. And I have to say, I have just tried my first virtual reality game over the Christmas break. It's pretty cool. I had no idea what to expect, but... You didn't get hurt, did you? No, <laughs> did not get hurt. <laughs> I did have to sit down, which was pretty funny. It was a roller coaster one, and I was standing up. And the virtual reality experience is just, it's so crazy how it makes you feel like you are actually on like a roller coaster or doing whatever you're doing in this game. It started taking me downhill, and I immediately sat down. I couldn't do it because I thought I was going to fall over just because it was so steep. And I have a natural fear of heights, so that kicked right in, even though I knew my feet were on the ground. It can be really disorienting. Yeah, for sure. And that really says something about how great the technology has gotten and how it relates to these times so well, because it was a gift for my husband's dad. And he, he uses it every day because he misses the real world being able to go out. And that's probably an experience that most people are feeling right now. They miss interacting with people around them. They miss doing real things, going scuba diving, traveling, being on vacation, sitting on a beach. So getting to have that similar experience right in your home as like a, even just a 30 minute escape is really awesome to have at your fingertips whenever you want to. Just to be able to connect with that emotion and that feeling that's connected to that experience. As nostalgic as it may feel at this time, it keeps you connected to that feeling. Exactly. It's going to become more and more relevant as we continue to be in quarantine and not able to do the things we might want to do. That's just one of the trends that I definitely see taking off as we live in these COVID times. Lauren, I'm curious, what do you think is going to happen when seeing what you've seen as far as like how 
these kinds of experiences were put in place in the 20s. What do you think is going to happen when we start emerging back into the world? Do you think that these sort of 3D experiences are still going to be as popular? Or what might that look like as people really have a more tangible interaction with those around them? I I would have to say that I think as soon as people get back to that real world, I don't think anyone's going to want anything to do with virtual reality. <laughs> if you can get a taste of that real reality world, I don't see people staying in their houses any longer attached to a screen. Yeah, I'm sort of wondering if it's going to be like the 1980s where people may still want to have those experiences, but they want to do them in group settings in like an arcade or something like that. There's a lot of interesting applications that may emerge. All of us are feeling that digital or virtual fatigue and all of these tools that have made life during the pandemic livable and allowed for connection. Some may go away and some may just find their ways into different aspects of life. And so that's that's one thing I'm really curious to watch. Definitely. And that actually reminded me of like 40 theaters. I think that those might become popular because that is that group setting. You're in a big room, you get all of the 40 experiences while you're sitting in this chair. And I wonder if that's going to make a comeback because I don't think that's as popular anymore. And with the new VR technology, that might make a comeback as well so that you can go experience it with other people rather than by yourself with goggles. So another one that I came across was nature-inspired designs. So back in the 1920s, we saw a lot of art deco, we saw a lot of nature-inspired designs. So it's really interesting to see these trends kind of coming back as we're emerging from another pandemic. So one of the side effects, if you will, of the pandemic situation is this thirst for nature. And I think we're all kind of feeling it especially hard here in these cold Ohio winters. But um, in the summer, especially, a lot of people were outside more because that was where you could feel safe and you could experience nature and get overwhelming joy <laughs> that we weren't feeling during the pandemic. Now that we're stuck inside and people are starting to try and bring nature back inside and it's becoming a design trend for home decor and even just regular artwork. We're seeing it in design work as well. People want the more natural look, the earthy colors and tones, natural gradients and color schemes, flowing lines. It's coming back into fashion to more airy clothes, simple clothes. You're not seeing as many like hot pinks as you used to. <laughs> but the idea of mimicking nature and these natural tones, they're creating natural ambiances that are becoming more comforting to people. And having that sudden urge to get out, people are trying to find a way to bring the outdoors inside again. Lauren, I, I totally agree with you. I think that, you know, when we were preparing for this podcast and thinking about what might be coming back, kind of looking at different interior designers and interior design publications have been talking about for 2021. And we referenced this on our last episode, but there's this prediction that grand millennial style is going to be one of the prevailing trends. And what keeps coming up time and time again is that you're going to see a lot more people wanting to not just connect with nature outdoors, but making greenery a much bigger part of how they're living indoors. So container gardens, ornamental plants, all of that, which it's not that we haven't seen it in recent years, but being done in a really extensive 
way inside, you know, making it almost as prevalent yeah. as furniture is what I've been seeing. Is that something you've been seeing as well? Yeah, definitely. That's that's exactly it. Um, people are bringing back the indoor plants, the real ones, not the fake ones. And it's also just like becoming more minimalist inside with your home decor is becoming a thing too, because less is becoming more again. When you're outside, you feel open and free. And sometimes when you're stuck in between these walls of your houses, it's it's nice to feel like you don't have stuff in every corner. But the airy plants that you're bringing in instead of the couple of books or decorative elements are reminding you of that open air, that fresh air that is outside. I think it's a result, Lauren, to your point of that minimalism, and that connects back to, as you said, that you know, when you think of that roaring 20s design aesthetic, it's very geometric, it's very symmetrical, it's very planned, and people living in their homes more than they ever have, the amount of hours that are, are now spent in one's home, everybody's much more conscious of of their homes, what they love about their homes, what they don't love about their homes, making those changes to their homes. And a big part of that is organization and purging and and minimalizing your, as you said, quote unquote, things that you don't want to feel tethered to anymore. And I think that definitely is reflective of the 1920s. It was all about a sense of freedom, a sense of moving on from what was expected. It was moving on from conventions of what perhaps a successful or perfect home look like. The fact that you're existing and living in your home is more than ever. Your People are making it their own because they have the time to. You know, weekends have changed for people. And I think there's much more of a consciousness of, of your space reflecting you. And that, to me, is also very reflective of the 1920s. Individualism, if I can look back at those past 100 years, like that was the decade where people weren't as chained to the sense of a social convention. It was much more about self-expression and self-style, personality through your style and and, uh, exhibiting your personal uh, approach to style as opposed to what you're told is appropriate. That is what we're seeing today is that freedom to, you know, like, what is my home? What is my vision and my voice of how I want my home to reflect myself? And I think that's definitely, you know, could be mirrored back to the 1920s. The other companion to that, Brian, is that in the 20s, you were seeing a lot of in-home entertaining because of prohibition. And because of the pandemic, you're going to see even after we emerge, even after most people have gotten their vaccine, there's still going to be this kind of tenuous behavior socially, I believe, because you don't know who out in the world at large has gotten that vaccine who's gotten the second dose, who's really safe to be around. And so I do think that you're going to see people wanting to entertain at home quite a bit, much in the same way they did during the 20s. And for that reason, that expression of individualism in your home, that way of like entertaining in a beautiful way, I think that that's going to become really important to people in a way that maybe it hasn't been, or at least as much as it hasn't been in the past. Absolutely. And it also speaks to the intimacy of the interaction with that group. I think right now, as much as people are yearning for events, at least I personally think that I keep like, it's so funny, even just this past weekend, I've been very conscious of texts with different friends where we just keep saying, I just can't wait for us to be sitting around a dinner table. I just can't wait for us to be on your patio. And not once am I looking forward to a big party or a big event. I'm hungering for like those connections and those gatherings with those that are close to you. And I think that 
definitely dovetails into what you just said, Hallie, is that idea of these, these smaller gatherings, these gatherings at homes with people you want to be with. Being in quarantine the way we have, it's really made you realize in a great way what you have with your friends and with your family. And that to me is what, speaking for myself, but I think it applies to many people, what people are just so hungry for are those moments with those you want to be around. And the idea of entertaining, at the beginning of COVID, we saw a lot of friends that were making special COVID cocktails and things like that. And it's fun to make drinks. We love to entertain, but it's different when it's for a small group or just an individual. You, you really would rather be doing that with a larger group because you want to share that specialty that you have, whether you're making food or cocktails. So everyone longs for that time when we can all be together. More on that idea of the similarities or the convergence where the 1920s and the, the 2020s come together, it's, it's this idea of economic prosperity. Everyone's hoping for that. The problem is right now what we're going through is it's still that recovery model of the K-shape. So some will recover faster than others. Another similarity with the 1920s and the 2020s is the distinctive culture that we're seeing culture already shift. And we're preparing for what that next stage will look like when we do have shared prosperity. One thing that I thought was quite interesting when I was looking at this for the 1920s was that it was also marked by the, the time when people were moving from rural areas to urban areas. And we're actually starting to see the opposite of that a little bit because of fear of what happens when you have large groups of people together. I'll be really curious to see how that plays out over the next year. I still strongly believe in the strength of cities and especially great Midwestern American cities in, in the Great Lakes region. They just have character that's unbelievable compared to the coast. Sorry, everyone. It's great in the Great Lakes. One thing just to add to that is as much as, again, we are firm believers in cities, what the real estate trends are saying is that there is going to be this return to the suburbs and it's going to continue through 2021. I was just reading an article where there was insight that was being provided by Quicken Loan around mortgages and where they're seeing people apply for mortgages. And they're talking about the exponential rate at which they're seeing people flock to the suburbs. And so what that means is that typically when people buy, they're not just buying for a one or a two year cycle, they're buying for a while. And so you may see some interesting types of development happening outside of cities as well. So it's not just where people are putting down roots in terms of their residence, but it's also what happens around them in those suburbs. So it's really going to potentially have implications on development overall. And I think that's another thing to watch. What kind of development is happening in cities versus what kind of development is happening in suburbs and how do those things differ? So definitely something we'll be watching in 21. An area of divergence I see between the 1920s and now is that in the 1920s, it was an explosion of wealth and prosperity and excitement and changes in human behavior. What we're seeing right now is for some people, they have been intentionally diminishing or holding back their spending and their productivity because they're just waiting. Everyone's waiting. We're in this crazy waiting place, as Dr. Seuss would say. And we don't want to do that anymore. Everyone's really excited about that. That is the main difference between the 1920s and now, is that people have all this built up energy for what the future will bring. And that has resulted in a, a new catalyst. It's confidence and also impulse. So we're going to see consumers making 
more frequent and bigger purchases. Businesses are going to invest in more capacity. They're going to hire more. You're also going to see workers train up because they want to continue to diversify their skill sets. We've already talked about this, as Hallie was noting, with homes. You're going to see more people, especially millennials, buying homes. They're getting married. Some have waited. Some haven't. They're moving forward. They're going to start having families. So you're going to see more children. It's very similar to what we saw during the 1920s. The crazy similarities to me is when you look at the defining facts or moments from the 1920s to today. Prohibition, then we know now it's social revolution for racial equality. There was also this conversation about new and old money. That new and old money is going to take a different turn. It's going to be caused by this K recovery model where you will have those that are able to move forward faster and those that have a slow recovery. Then it was jazz. People are going to be ready to go out and they're going to want to dance. They're going to want to move. So I'm not quite sure what it's going to be. I don't know if it'll be synth pop or 1970s disco influenced dance music. Something will happen. It's often referenced that the the symbol of this time period is the flapper. And Brian noted that the flappers were just a symbol of one going against convention. And at that time, flappers redefined the way women looked. And today the flapper is going to be the activist and they're going to redefine the way you go against convention and how you redefine human behavior and reinforce this idea of civility, which we've talked about a lot on the podcast. One thing I think a lot about when I think about this era is that it's an era that's defined by incredible style and almost like a reckless abandon for societal norms. But at the same time, it was an era that was highly elite, very exclusive, and hopefully yeah. that's the opposite of what we're going to see in this in this time frame. Yeah. The 20s, and this is the piece that gets talked about less, was also a time that was defined by some really exclusionary policies and some really exclusionary ideas. People forget yeah. that it was also the time that gave birth to the popularity of ideological systems like eugenics, which is, yes, it's you know often referenced as the basis for what Hitler did in Germany, but it's also lesser known that Margaret Sanger, who was the founder of Planned Parenthood, actually was a huge believer in eugenics, and that was part of what led her to found this program of birth control. Obviously, today, Planned Parenthood does a lot of great things, but at the time, there were some kind of nefarious origins there. While this era had a lot that we liked about it, you know, from a design perspective, we have a way to improve on the way that those fun things about the era get reinterpreted today and who's invited to the party. That's the piece that I hope we'll be all looking at is how to create fun and magic that comes out of a compressed time in our lives, i.e. this period of time while we've been stuck in our houses over the last year. But how do we do it in such a way that we can all enjoy it and it doesn't allow for some of these more exclusionary ideals. To Hallie's point about this idea of a joy of life and a joy, a redefining of what is that joy of life. And you know, to your point too, you know, that, that flapper being in a sense, the poster child for that, you know, here we suddenly found like these women um, in the 1920s, they bobbed their hair, they smoked cigarettes, and, and they drank jazz clubs. And they weren't re repressed by the idea of being received by men. They were the ones that were going out. They were living their lives in their ideals and in their ways and by their rules. If you think about it, that, that bobbed hair was extremist at the time. It was from what, especially that 
whole Victorian era that we were coming off of. It was roughly around 1923 when the French designer Coco Chanel, she is who introduced what's known as the garçon look, and that is the infamous dress that you see these flappers wearing. You know, the hemlines were, you know, gasped above the hem, above the knee. But, but to me, it's really, really important to note was the fact that these dresses were a straight, non-existent waistline, and they were sleeveless. They were lighter, they were flexible, and what I love about this is when I was reading about it, it said this new design allowed them to dance freely. And like, what a symbol. You know, you're, again, as I said, you're coming off of this Victorian decades, actually, of these women in corsets and layers and petticoats. Suddenly, here it is, a simple slip dress with no waistline, no restriction. And to me, that is so symbolic of the 1920s where dancing freely, literally, but also figuratively. To your point, Eric, you know, more people were moving to the city more than ever during this period. And women, for the first time, you know, not only were we kicking off this decade with the passage of the 19th Amendment and their ability to work, so for the first time, women were in the workforce. And yes, you know, in no way was their pay rate comparable to their male counterparts. But for the first time, they were part of consumer culture. They were making purchasing decisions. They were choosing what they wanted. Things were not presented to them or gifted to them. Though women were part of the workforce, they didn't necessarily represent a, a change to those traditional gender roles. Nearly a third of them in the 1920s were domestic service or clerical workers, factory workers, store clerks, um, what they called feminized professions. But they were still working, and they laid the groundwork for decades to come. That work done in the 1920s by these flappers is what continued to create that ripple and would then build to the wave of the coming decades, in particular as we went into the 60s and the 70s, and, and many of the women rights movements were those seeds were planted by these women in the 1920s. Often when we look back, we, we forget that it was it was almost this liberation versus only a hedonistic lifestyle. And I hope that we take that idea of going against convention and, and we apply it in a very productive way, you know, in this generation. But guys, here's the scary thing. The 20s ended with the stock market crash. It's hard not to think about that because, yes, some people really felt great hardship during these times. And it was felt in more than one way. There's no doubt about it, not just financial, but equity based, socially, racially, you name it. So I do think there will be this great recovery in coming years. While we are moving extremely slow right now because of the pandemic, we most likely will return to an expedited way of living life. And when it took nine years to have a stock market crash, I don't think it will be a crash, but I do think that we'll see some type of backlash for how things turn out. By no means am I an economist. I just feel like the recession that everyone talked about the big one that everyone talked about hasn't came yet. And it's this, this scary idea that if we are to look into the future, what will that look like? And how do we continue to think about it? So I, I hate to end on a negative note. It just, it's the unknown. Part of the problem is that the predicted economic recession, largely, not that it was completely tied to it, but prior to part of it was that it was being timed with an election year that was seen as largely volatile. And because of the pandemic, there are varying opinions on, are we going to see a recession? If so, when? 
what sectors are going to be most vulnerable. And from what I've been seeing in the last few months, there's a lot of opinions that are starting to lean away from the fact that it's going to affect the housing sector. That was one sector that they thought might be greatly affected previously. But because of the pandemic, so many fewer people were actually putting their homes on the market. And so there was massive scarcity. Prices were being driven way up and the sellers were actually getting the prices that they were asking for. And so what the economists are now predicting is that when people feel safer to actually engage in the world again and maybe putting their houses you know, on the market, contemplating a move, that you may see that the housing sector still remains strong. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to see that kind of strength in every sector, but it does mean that with housing, which is a really good indicator of what's happening, because presumably buyers need to have enough financial stability to make a purchase, a large purchase such as a home, it's a good indicator of economic health. While it's not the only factor, it's a good sense that maybe we'll be staving off a widespread economic disaster such as we saw back about a decade ago. So while we continue to sort of monitor that situation, there are a lot of other trends that are definitely not going to wait. Lauren, what else did you find in your research? Back to talking about that whole social experiences, I thought it was interesting that after the Spanish flu of 1918, we kind of saw it stop in a specific behavior that was very popular back then. But very clearly after that flu was seen as unsanitary. And that trend was actually public spitting, where people would just spit in bars and restaurants for customers as like a form of entertainment. And it was just a normal thing. And it kind of reminded me of handshaking in our times. And I'm really curious to see if handshaking is something that is going to disappear as we exit the COVID-19 pandemic. Because I think a lot more people now are thinking about what they're touching constantly, who they're touching, who they're greeting. And I'm just curious to see if that greeting is going to become much like in other cultures, like a bow or a wave, something without touching the other person, but still showing respect. I agree, Lauren. I was just going to say, I could maybe not as much of like the bow from the, the waist, if you will, but like a nice head nod, like a kind of timed head nod. I think it was back in early summer when Dr. Fauci said he could see handshakes going away. And I remember thinking that sounded so preposterous, but as now here we are, and it really does seem like something that's like, oh, will that be something that returns, at least not in the near future? Is it an endangered species in a sense? It's, it's really funny to think about. Okay, so I'm taking an informal poll. What would you like to see replace handshaking? I've always been a simple wave kind of person, but for a form of respect, we could definitely see like a head nod or like a bow of some sort kind of coming into play. So I don't know about all of you, but do you find yourself already almost programmed to react to, like if you're watching a movie or a show that was clearly done before the pandemic and you see lots of people in a room or people shaking hands, you're almost, we're already in a place where that looks foreign, that looks and feels strange. So and that to me is concerning. It is about, you know, connection and the fact that we have been so programmed appropriately in a sense to, to avoid that. And the idea of its future fate being very questionable, it's truly a reality. Yeah, for sure. 
I find myself fighting this internal battle of wanting to be completely isolated versus being pulled out into the world by my children. And it's made me much more aware of like how uncomfortable I am at the moment. For example, we took the kids snowboarding this weekend and just at a little resort by our house. And afterwards the kids were like, we're hungry. We want, we want a snack. We want to get dinner or whatever. And I went inside and it was like everywhere we were at, I was like, don't touch that. Don't touch that. Don't go over there trying to like slather them up in antibacterial. So it's even more than the greeting. It's the idea of when we go back out into the world, like what is going to be sanitized enough? What does comfortable look like? And so I think that it just, for me, reinforces some of the things, Lauren and Brian, that you were saying before about this desire to continue to have in-home experiences, because I will speak for myself, as much as I yearn to be out in the world, I know it's going to be a while until I'm really comfortable doing it with a lot of regularity. You know, there's just a lot of discomfort there when I've been out in spaces during this time, which has been pretty minimal. Definitely. And I think, too, that whole idea of like what brings you comfort and joy is really relevant these days. People are acknowledging their anxieties, finding what brings them joy. And that kind of comes back to the whole idea of minimalism and searching for luxury in your home, in what you're doing, in your everyday life. And that's another trend that I think we're going to be seeing more is kind of gliding for that luxury feel. Specifically, metallics and golds, I think, are going to come back like crazy. I went out and I bought myself a sparkle tumbler cup because it just makes me happier to drink water out of a sparkly cup. I don't know why, but <laughs> something about it feels more luxurious. Well, yeah, especially at a time when like we have so few luxuries like there are people that literally don't wear pants that button on most days because why you're not leaving the house and so like when you're really talking about that where so much of what had felt exciting to us prior to the pandemic has been stripped away in this last year having that little moment of joy whatever that looks like to you those little luxuries so to speak makes a big difference in the way that you feel about your day definitely exactly um, and that brings me right back into the probably the most obvious trend that I think we'll be seeing again. But in the Roaring Twenties, Art Deco design was very popular, and we had touched on this a little bit earlier, but the geometric shapes and simple designs, flat designs that are abstract and confident are coming back, and we're seeing these like really amazing Art Deco-inspired designs pop up again for specifically wallpaper or flooring people are desiring that and it brings you that feeling of luxury with the different accents of gold in houses and i think that instead of like a full room being one solid design it's going to be become little areas of these peaks of these luxury feeling or luxurious feeling works of art that create an interest factor well, I think, too, it speaks to what we were mentioning earlier, that idea of it's in a sense curating, like in this time of reflection, yeah, I just was saying you're reflecting on what you want your life to be. And I think the home, once again, is a reflection of that. So it may not necessarily embrace one particular aesthetic or style. There may be a little bit more of a hybrid. And I think obviously 
that is a, one of the buzzwords of 2020, right, is hybrid. We're taking different pieces and different elements and making them work for us. So that could really be applied to how we are decorating, how we are designing, even beyond the home, the way design work is approached. At Shark and Minnow, we're very proud of the fact that we don't prescribe to one design trend. We, our design is always applying and representing the client that we're collaborating with. That authenticity is something that we've always embraced and we've always approached our work with. I keep saying this idea of reflection and self-reflection. I think that's what people are seeing. They're like, what is me? What describes me? What defines my space? And I think that's why we're seeing this variety in terms of housing decor trends and design trends and even fashion. Clearly, you know, fashion right now, Callie, to your point, is very much like, why wear something that's more, you know, that buttons when we're in a place where you know, you're not leaving your home? It's allowed people to purging your closet. Like, what what clothes am I not wearing anymore? What doesn't serve, you know, not to get all Marie Kondo, but what is not serving us anymore, right? So I think it's really, to me, it just really comes down to the amount of time we've had to assess and reflect and, and design our lives in the way that we see them to be what we want them to be. Absolutely. It'll just be interesting to see how that defines popular culture on the go forward, because typically pop culture like has a little bit of a mass market component to it or a significant mass market component to it. But when you're experiencing trends mostly on your own in your home, what does that mean when we all start to come back together in mass? So that's another thing that I'm really curious to watch is when we all come back together, which trends are really going to win out? And what is life going to look like in three to five years? What is going to be the prevailing trend in home design, in apparel, in all sorts of lifestyle type brands? We were speaking earlier in the podcast about the fact that the flapper is an icon of the 1920s. And one of the things I mentioned was the iconic Coco Chanel inspired dress that had the non-existent waistlines, that straight, slim silhouette, and the idea that that design allowed them to move freely. And what a great representation and symbol that was of the newfound freedom of women at that time. What we love about that reflection to the 2020s, we were speaking recently about what we were seeing on the Capitol steps. You know, it was, in a sense, a runway of the Capitol steps at the inauguration of Joe Biden. And, and Hallie, you had some interesting thoughts uh, in terms of some of the silhouettes and just the looks that we were seeing the various politicians and representatives that were present at the inauguration in terms of what you saw that as a symbol of. One of the most striking differences from a fashion standpoint for, for me was the softness with which we saw this, in this new administration, largely the women, come into that event. Also, the men. Joe Biden himself was wearing this very soft wool cashmere blend jacket. And it was this very like beautiful look that seemed to almost like quite literally wrap this event in warmth. And what I thought was really interesting about it is it was a stark contrast to what we were seeing in dressing right around the time that Trump's inauguration happened and then thereafter. You saw a lot of things happening with women's style, particularly in apparel, where you were seeing a return to menswear and sharp corners and shoulder pads and very structured dressing. Both for women and men, you saw the resurgence of the double-breasted jacket. And to me, it was almost like this tight, bound look, um, this very structured, very forceful, very masculine dressing, like this power look. It was almost like the absolute antithesis to that for me 
was when you saw Michelle Obama walking into the inauguration in this absolutely stunning, tone-on-tone, cranberry-colored, flowy pant and knitwear ensemble. It was a cape. I think it was a turtleneck. Yes, it had a high-waisted belt, but the pants were like this beautiful flowy fabric. And her hair was soft and curly, and it was just this beautiful disco era to me look. Those soft Donna Summer curls. We've moved away from the mismatch to the match to the tonal dressing, kind of back to that look. And it just shows this shift that, much like what Lauren was talking about with home decor and this return to natural and this organic feel to homes, it's the same thing here. We're not trying to overly construct the body. We're instead trying to work with it and have it be a representation of individual while allowing for, Brian, as you mentioned, very similar to the flapper dress, this freedom of movement so that one can express themselves that way but not be limited by dressing. And so I think that that's also a really interesting shift in design. I think from what I'm seeing as predictions for future collections, we're going to see it a lot on the runways at the next shows across the globe. To your point, Hallie, I think one of the things that was really striking for me and for so many people as they watched this inauguration was the explosion of color and how well appointed it was and how it all worked together. No matter who was um, in proximity to each other or who walked in together, there was so much thoughtfulness behind the color and behind the symbolism of the color. Um, Even the day before, even the evening before at the ceremony that they held, in remembrance of those that have been lost to COVID, the camel-colored coat that Kamala was wearing, the beautiful deep purple coat that First Lady Jill Biden was wearing. And but even on Inauguration Day, you know, the, that that symbolism behind Kamala's look, that purple, purple being that mix of blue and red, it's bipartisan, but it also represents the idea of, of the women's suffrage movement. The fact that Joe Biden's tie was a soft blue tie. It wasn't that hard democratic blue, you know, so all of those notes, the white glowing ensemble that Jennifer Lopez wore, again, a reflection back to the idea of the women's suffrage movement. Then there was that beautiful canary colored coat that Amanda Gorman wore and that with the red headpiece. You know, I remember like watching her in that incredible moment and the way that those colors just vibrated off of the red and the blue of the surrounding carpets and the swags on the Capitol building. So there was so much of a story that was being told through the fashion and through the color. And once again, we keep reflecting back to those symbols that the 1920s brought us was that idea to your point with the silhouettes of freedom and brightness and to me almost could even speak to the idea of the diversity of all the colors and the different walks of life that were brought together and very intentionally meant to be represented in this event absolutely and what i'll add to that is not just on the democratic side but brian as you've always said former first lady melania trump love her or dislike her, one thing that you can say about her is that this woman can wear clothes. One thing that's been made much about is that when Melania left DC, she was wearing this beautiful Chanel jacket with a Dolce & Gabbana dress, very structured, very tight. Again, sort of a relic of, of the last four years as we've been talking about. But when she deplaned in Florida, we saw her come out in this explosion of color, this like unbelievable Gucci dress, brightly patterned cream, orange, and blue, definitely reminiscent of the late 60s or early 70s, just an absolute departure from what we've you know, mostly seen her in, in DC. And so I think that there are people on both sides of the aisle 
that no matter how they feel about the next four years, they definitely see it as a major departure from where we've been and we're gonna see that reflected in dressing. Hallie, I think as we continue to speak about these fashions that we saw on Inauguration Day and the thoughtfulness and that symbolism behind the silhouettes, the colors, the cuts, and as you just pointed out with Melania, the transition from one outfit to another and, and what that meant. I do think that these colors that were reflective of the colors of suffragettes, um, it spoke to the ideas of those dreams that were definitely beginning to take root and put us on this trajectory 100 years ago. This whole episode, we've talked about that reflection of the past 100 years and how the 1920s, they're reflective of, but there's also this definitive difference between the two decades. There's much more of an awareness, as Eric was speaking to earlier, with any sort of impending financial situations that we may be approaching. The difference between where we are today versus where we are then is that awareness, a little bit more of that approach to a holistic view. Not to be cliche and that, that idea of learning from the past to apply it to the future. There is such a fascinating mirrored situation, the fact that we are coming off a pandemic and that we're coming into this new decade in a sense, and, and they both happen to be the 20s. And it speaks to that mindset that a lot of people are in. So that idea of hopefulness, that idea of individuality, and that idea of defining one's life, how you see it. That's what we've all been fascinated by. I'm very interested to hear what others out there are seeing as reflection, um, reflective moments between the 20s and the 20s. My Bigger Boat goes out to Amanda Gorman, the nation's first national youth poet laureate. I was so incredibly inspired by her this last week when I had the ability to hear her speak at the inauguration, and I continue to just be in awe of this young woman's perspective and joy the more I learn about her and her writing and the way that she speaks with such exuberance at a time when we need so much positivity. Thank you, Amanda Gorman, for all you're doing, and we look forward to watching you in years to come. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to GM CEO Mary Barra. After the announcement of the Hummer EV and Cadillac Lyric, GM has done it again with the announcement of Bright Drop, a new logistics-focused business unit for the company. The first product is the EV600, a new zero-emissions battery-powered commercial van. And they also announced the EP1, a battery-powered self-propelled rolling pallet both of these products will help logistics and transportation companies operate more effectively, efficiently, and eco-consciously, helping to make sure our future is brighter for all. This episode, My Bigger Boat goes to Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot and an arts organization known as the Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, also known as DCASE, as they recently announced $2.5 million in funding opportunities for Chicago artists and arts organizations. This artist response program will provide money to support art that responds to recent health, economic, and humanitarian crises. As Mayor Lightfoot stated, this has presented us with a unique opportunity to not only rebuild our city with the values and equity and inclusion in mind, but also document this journey with art projects designed to engage residents in dialogue, reflection, and action. 
To learn more about DCASE and this initiative, please visit chicagoculturalarts.org. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to the hashtag viral kindness postcard project. In effort to spread a word of kindness, Becky Wass created a postcard that is free to download and print for all. This postcard says, hello, if you are self-isolating, I can help. It allows people to fill out their name, address, and phone number and tick boxes indicating how they can help. The options include picking up shopping, posting mail, a friendly phone call, and urgent supplies. The design also features safety notes so that people who partake in it ensure that they are only spreading kindness. The viral kindness postcard enables people to let their neighbors know where they are without making physical contact. Even the little things count, and this postcard is an example that even these small little things can make the biggest impact. This week's episode is in support of Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. Cuyahoga County has announced that $4 million in funding will be made available to arts and culture through the Federal Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or the CARES Act. $2.7 million is set to be distributed to arts and culture nonprofits through Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, with an additional $1.3 million for for-profit performing arts venues and artists to be distributed through Arts Cleveland. The funding will provide critical funding to Cuyahoga County's arts and culture sector, which has experienced a devastating loss of revenue and jobs as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. 